0: A vital question to be considering in our time of worship what is the foundation of your life what are you basing your life on really what is the basis we can say it's jesus we can say it's god's word and god's promises but man it can be so many other things a friend of mine had been walking with jesus for over 50 years and he got a diagnosis from his doctor i don't know if you or anybody you love has gotten one of these sort of diagnoses but the doctor said, well, the initial tests came back and they're inconclusive. So we're going to have to run more tests and we won't know the results of those tests for about a week and a half. But either you're fine or you have about six weeks to live. And he had to wait a week and a half to find out whether he was fine Or had six weeks to live. And my friend Dave said to me that if you had asked him how he would have handled that here in his late early 60s, he said I would have encountered it with faith and hope and I would have navigated that just fine. But he said I was shocked at how shaken I was. I was shocked at how evident it was to me that my faith and my hope grounded in the eternal promises of God weren't as solid as I thought they were. And so it's a really important question. What is the basis of our hope? What is the basis of our faith? It's amazing how easily hard times come, struggles come, and we get blindsided in a way that shakes us. And it's evident in those moments that our confidence isn't really ultimately in the promises of god it's in statistics or prognoses that the doctor gives or financial forecasts that assure us that we'll be secure and times like these where there are so many things up in the air actually can be good for us obviously we don't want seven dollar gasoline we don't want wars raging in the world obviously we can pray against those things but when those things come we need to lean into them and find out where we really are in our hope in the basis of our lives and in where it really is found i remember do you know in 2008 there was a major crash financially Many of you, were you even alive then? Yes, you were. Okay, good. What you most of you weren't alive in '87 when the same thing happened. My father actually lost everything, and uh, in '87 and had to start over again financially, and a lot of people did. And in 2008 there was a major downturn, and it was just devastating to so many people. And it seems like we're in another time where, where our security is being tested and all these things that should not be the source of our security. They should not be the source of our confidence and our hope. And there's something good about those things being shaken. I remember in 08, I was a pastor and, and uh, you know most of the people in my church are doing pretty well financially, but I remember thinking, okay, God can really work. When the people in my church just saw the retirement disappear. Now, where's our hope? Where, where's our real confidence? And so, so we're going to think tonight about where our real hope and our confidence and our focus is in our relationship with God. We, we're singing, we've sung a, at least a couple of times this weekend, that God is the God of revival. And I love the theme of revival. I've, I've taught a course On a history of revival, I've taken courses. It's a fascinating subject to me. I've experienced true revival in communities about a half a dozen times, and it's just one of the most awesome things you can ever experience. Uh, I've experienced healing, physical healing. I've experienced uh, words that people give you that, that are from the Lord. But man, I'll tell you, it's amazing when you go through a corporate revival where God shows up and it's clear God has arrived as he, he, he hasn't been for a while and it's like a runaway locomotive. And you just want to stay on that train and it's an incredible thing. But revival actually is a glorious thing, but there's also a tragic component to it as well because the fact is God's people should be living in a constant state of revival. The need for revival is actually an indicator that we're not where we should be that we've drifted from God. And when we compare ourselves to the popular culture, we can seem like we're doing well, but we can't compare ourselves, as we've said, to others, to the culture, to where the lines seem to be in in purity and in holiness in our culture and then see how we're doing accordingly. We've got to go to God and His Word to find out what true revival means. So we want to think about revival. And so would you open your bibles to an incredible story here in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 shows us this beautiful picture of revival. And it's anything but neat and tidy. Paul's moved into Ephesus and he's establishing this church in Ephesus, this really important city. Paul was very strategic where he moved in and started churches. And here he starts one in Ephesus, a major influential city, desperately in need of Jesus. And he moves in, he leads a few guys to a full understanding of the gospel. He goes into the synagogue like Jesus did, as was his practice. He preaches the gospel for three months. He finally gets booted after he's there for three months, and he starts a little Bible school. And and I love, I love the way we've been not just led to sing together, but the worship team has been teaching us. I hope you realize that. Do you know in the history of the church, what God's people believed throughout the history of the church has been learned far more from what God's people have sung than even from reading their own Bibles? Because for most of the history of the church, Christians didn't even have, didn't even have their own Bibles. And a lot of times in the history of the church, Christians were illiterate, and so they would learn what they believed from going to church and hearing the creeds recited and hearing the hymnody and hearing the words of the music. And that's why it's so important we choose music that is teaching us truth and leading God's people to Bible-based truth and not just what happens to be popular now. We've got to want to be teaching. And I know there's a tension between pastors and worship leaders very often. And pastors can even say, you know, leave the preaching to me. You know, don't, don't sort of step on my toes and start preaching. And I just think that's a terrible divide. If, if, the, if the leadership of your church is saying, leave the teaching to me and just sing. I think there's a problem in the perception of both preaching and worship leading. And I'm sure some of you have experienced this. And obviously, you don't want to preach a sermon before the sermon. But we should be didactic. We should be teaching God's people what we believe and what we sing. I mean, Katie was just teaching us. She was was speaking to us exhortatively, And she was encouraging us and she was she was coming out of a biblical view of things. And I hope you're open to learning in the midst of worship. I've said this before already this weekend, but worship is not just expressing what we believe. It's clarifying what we believe. It's deepening what we believe. Some of the most profound times of worship I've ever experienced are when something I didn't realize comes home to me for the first time, or something I did realize comes home to me more deeply, and I'm learning as I'm singing and worshiping. And I hope you seek to challenge people to keep raising the bar on the amount of thinking. The brain doesn't shut off when you come to worship. It's not just emotion, it certainly should be that, but it should be educational, it should be formative in our thinking and our affections. And so we've got to be people who are leading others to deeper understanding of truth and coming to that deeper understanding even as we lead. And so Paul starts a little Bible institute and instead of taking a siesta, they study the Bible together. And that went on for three years, and the word of God spread and grew. And then watch what happens. This is just amazing. Anybody who thinks the Bible's boring must not have ever read it. It's just amazing to me anyone would say that. Listen to 1911 of of the book of Acts. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Let's pause there. Isn't that amazing? They don't know Jesus. They're borrowing this incantation to overcome spiritual powers of darkness, thinking that it's just these words you need to say. But you can't have the power without the person. Paul knew the person. They didn't. And so watch what happens. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize. But who are you? I'm sorry, that's funny. You can laugh. I, I, I actually think I, one of my research interests as a theologian is humor, a Christian view of humor. And in my opinion, there's no doubt, Luke is the funniest writer in the Bible. He is. Acts and, and the Gospel of Luke have amazing humor in them. And, and just the way Luke tells stories brings out the human element in our folly. This demon says, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but you're not showing up on the guest list. I don't know who you are. And then watch what happens. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. What? That's just incredible. I don't know how many of you have gotten in fights. I've gotten in a lot of fights. Not for a long time. I mean, it's not, it's not becoming for a pastor. to want. To, although a guy tried to fight me the other day at my gym. I couldn't believe it. I didn't do anything. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is it's, it's a crazy story, uh, but I don't have time for it. But uh, he had no idea what he was about to get into if it ever did go down. But um, <laughs> but I, I, I said, I'm your father's age. What are you talking about? But, um, but um, I've gotten in a lot of fights, and I won a lot of them, but I lost some too. And I've been beaten up. Mostly by my big brother um, before I got older and then the tide shifted. But, um, but I've been beaten up. But I'll tell you, I've, been, I've, I've never been beaten up so bad that I was naked because of it and bleeding. I mean, I was bleeding. But imagine getting beat up so bad you got no clothes left. And so I also find the next phrase humorous. Let's listen to this. Verse 17, as if you need to say this. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. No doubt, right? <laughs> Did you hear what happened to those guys who tried to cast out a demon and, and they were just using Jesus? They had no idea what they were tapping into. They, they just tried to tame a rocket, right? And they got their butts beat. This is an old-fashioned butt whooping is what it is. And a, a demon does it to them through this guy. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. But watch the result. Everybody knew it, Jews and Greeks. And watch the result. And a fear fell upon them all. So word spreads about the power of the person of Christ that Paul is preaching. And in this incredibly spiritually complex city, it's obvious a power in the spiritual realm has shown up they've never even seen anything close to. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now, you need to read your Bible carefully because context is king, as they say. You need to pay attention to the context because you know the Bible will command us to not fear. Fear not, right? Don't fear. But there are other times, as we'll see, the Bible commands fear. Which means we can't just have a simplistic understanding of words in the Bible. And by the way, a little interpretive lesson here, uh, don't just depend on words either occurring in the Bible for concepts to be present. Let me give an example. Do you know that in the prodigal son story... You know where this son takes his father's inheritance and goes and completely wastes it and he comes back after it being in complete destitution and his father runs down the road to meet him and he hugs him. He won't even let, get, let the whole full confession comes out and he has a banquet and the older son is judgmental. You know the story? Yeah, you're familiar. Good, I'm glad. Can't assume anything these days, right? But, but yes, do you know the word grace? never appears in that story what's that story about grace right so don't think concepts are limited to particular words sometimes a concept can be powerfully present even if the words as helpful as concordances are where you look where all the words occur in the bible it can be limiting in your understanding of how to interpret ideas in the bible yes makes sense okay so So this word fear is something I want us to understand tonight. There is a kind of fear that is wrong and even sinful and unhealthy. It leads to the kind of anxiety that Katie was pointing out. There's no doubt some of us are wrestling with, right? And so there there is an unhealthy, there's a self-destructive, there's an inhibiting fear that can even be sinful that God commands we not have. But there's a kind of fear that I want us to think about tonight that is not only good, it's actually absolutely essential to have a true relationship with God and to have a growing relationship with God. And it's this kind of fear. And how do we know the difference? Well, this passage tells us as clearly as you can. What's the result of this fear? It's right in the verse that says that fear fell upon them all. And what's the result? What's the result? That's right. The name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored, was was highly esteemed. Anytime fear results in the esteem of Jesus being exalted, it's a good fear. It's a right fear. If it keeps you from stepping out in faith, If it keeps you from using your gifts with a reckless abandoning, willing to make mistakes in in the craft you're trying to hone. I was talking to Katie today. It was so good. I love it when I have conversations. I was talking to Katie, and she was saying when she started singing, she didn't want to sing in front of anybody. For how long? Six years, you said? And and she said she would step away from the microphone when she finally did it so people couldn't hear. Isn't that great? That, that she's gotten to the point where she, where, where she can help us with her confidence, right? And I've noticed, I'm not an artist. I'm an artist wannabe, if you're picking that up. I, I'm, I am. I'm an artist wannabe. Um, I have been my whole life, but, but I get concerned with artists because you can, as we were saying this morning, get so much of your identity wrapped up in your art, that you're not willing to just be generous with it. You know, you got to get it perfect before you're going to give it to anybody. No, be, 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 be sloppy. Some, just get, we, My brother-in-law dated a woman who was an amazing, she threw pots. She'd make vases. She was incredible. She was amazing. And she smashed about 70% of the things she made. Because they weren't perfect. They weren't exactly what you... And I, I was like, give them to me. Give them to me. I don't even know what you're talking about when you say it's not what you wanted. And I'm not saying we don't seek excellence, but but we can get so much of who we are wrapped up in our art that we're not willing to say, hey, my... The worship leader, one of the worship leader, leaders at our church is an amazingly gifted man. He's sung with Adele and Lady Gaga. He sang on Bob Dylan's last album. He, he's a writer. He, one time I preached a sermon in our first service and near the end of the sermon he starts writing a song. And he, he got up after the, service, after the sermon was over, he said, you know, I just wrote the beginning of a song. Let's just try it. And he did, he just wrote it on a piece of paper and he said, I'm gonna teach it and he just tried it. By the second, He sat through the second sermon, he had the whole thing done by the end of the second sermon. By the end of the third sermon, third service that morning, he had already written out uh, she- song sheets, is that what you call them? Song sheets with musical notation and stuff and gave it to the band and they busted out a song he wrote that morning. And, and so, it, now, that's gifting, obviously, but that's also a humility, right? A willingness to say, hey, let's try this out. This could be fun. It, it could crash too, but we'll see, right? And so we, we need to take God as seriously as we can, but not take ourselves seriously. You know, we're we're little kids that play in a sandbox. And so let's have a, a playfulness and not take ourselves seriously and but have a healthy, holy fear of the Lord. The name of the Lord was hel- held in high honor here. It was extolled. And watch what happens. So many of those who, now be- uh, who were now believers, now I, I, I don't think this is people coming to Christ for the first, first time. I think this was people who became Christians In what God was doing in Ephesus, but there was a disconnect between their new faith in Jesus and how they were living, and as we'll see, how they were even making a living. Watch. Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver that's about 3 years wages entire years wages it's it, when you add up all these people it's 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 millions translated into today's terms millions of dollars torched in the streets and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver did you what an incredible story so so people who were following Jesus realized okay my my life in Christ now is not matching up with things in my life and for these magicians even the way they made a living, their livelihood. It wasn't just some things in their lives, it was the way they provided for their families. And in this context, in Ephesus in the first century, if you had power in the spiritual realm, and this was an incredibly deep and dark and complex spiritual place, but if you had power in that realm, if you were able like these seven sons of Sceva to help people somehow control reality, they thought, you had a lot of money and you had a lot of prestige And you had a lot of authority and a lot of reputation. And when they were convicted because they feared Jesus, they took the very way they made a living, their very source of power and prestige and authority and livelihood, and they torched it in the street. They confessed it. They acknowledged it in front of everyone. It was a revival in Ephesus. You know, it's awesome. I mean, when you read chapters 19 and 20 of Ephesus, Acts. It's mostly about the church getting established in Ephesus, and it's an incredible story. There are revivals. After this, there's going to be a riot, and they're, they're wanting to kill Christians. I mean, rivals, uh, revivals, and riots. I mean, it's just incredibly adventuresome. It's beautiful. I remember hearing a British bishop talk about this. He said, It seems like everywhere the apostles went, there was either, either a revival or a riot. And it seems that everywhere I go, people just make tea. And, and his, his life so, felt so tame when he read the Bible. And, and I bet your generation, you young people, are going to see adventuresomeness in the Christian life that my generation never saw because of persecution, because of ways God's going to work. I hope you're ready for it. And so what we're called to is living what we believe. So when, you, when we go to worship and we, we've been singing the most grand and glorious and deep ideas you can ever fathom. And I know you get used to it. I know you come into a time of worship and sort of just put it on singing cruise control. But, but I'm so thankful. And so I lead a hymn most classes I teach at Biola. We start class with a hymn usually. And it's funny. God gave me a voice that is just barely good enough to start a hymn in class. And usually by about halfway through the first stanza, I found the key. And my students are so kind to me. They just go in. And a lot of times it's a hymn they've never sung. So it's a solo for a, a, a little bit. And, and then they join in graciously and mercifully and help me. But I just love that God gave me a voice just good enough to do what I want to do in class. But never good enough to take any pride in it. Never good enough for anyone to be sitting in front of me in church and say, Oh. You have quite a voice, right? I I think that must be a challenge for you. Those of you who have beautiful voices, it must be a challenge for you to not be thinking about that. Thinking, man, the whole row in front of me must be really impressed right now, right? And I would think it would take a real work of the Spirit to get you to focus on God and not not the the gifts He's given you. But I want to challenge you to do that. Because... God can take those things away. You know, I remember I started teaching and and it, it went really well. I couldn't believe how well it went. I, If you know my background, you wouldn't believe I do what I do. Like people who knew me when I was young, they think it's hilarious that people call me doctor and professor. They just think it's hilarious. But, But I... I, I, it went really well, and, and I, was, I was loving it, and students were loving it, and I was even getting awards at Biola and things. And I was about two and a half years into it, and I, I mean, I was sort of the new prof, and people were impressed, and, and I, I don't know if I was getting sinfully proud about it, but do you know what happened? My voice went. It just went, and as you can tell, I, I use it a lot. And when I teach, you know, it's not sort of an understated thing for me. And, and so it started to go. And there were about three months where I didn't know if I was going to lose my voice. I didn't know if it was going to be gone. It's, it's how I was now making my living. It, it's now what I did. And I had to wrestle with, Lord, what if you took this away? What's going on here? Are you trying to put things in perspective? And I think he was. I think he was. So putting gifts he's given you in perspective so that you don't find who you are in those things because those things can go. God can take those things away. He's done that in people's lives and caused them to completely reorient and, and their lives and find out where their worth really is found. But what we've got to do is get to the point where as we said this morning, we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ and he becomes everything to us. Listen to what he says in Matthew 10. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross daily and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's at the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Someone who's given up everything to follow him. He may not require you to give up most of the things that you have in your life, but there's got to be an open-handed relinquishing of everything this world offers because you so value Christ. Like we said this morning, if you got to heaven and everything you ever wanted was there except for Jesus, could you ever be happy? And we need to start thinking and living that way now. It's got to be all about Him. And so it's not enough just to change your creed. Our lives need to change too. It takes a major reorienting of our entire lives when Jesus becomes everything to us. He's not part of our lives, He is our lives. And, And truly following Jesus may mean you forfeit material prosperity or status or popularity or worldly pleasures or approval of men or your rights. Just like these guys, they were seized with fear, held the name of Jesus in high honor, and were willing to give up whatever was getting in the way of their unencumbered fellowship with God. But it all starts with fear of the Lord. And I, I want us to leave here tonight with a healthy love and understanding, uh, love for and understanding of the fear of the Lord and a pursuit of it in our lives. Do you realize what a the massive theme this is in the Bible? It's huge in the Bible. The fear of the Lord is. Beginning of wisdom. And, and when we say fear, we mean a holy fear, which is a God given enabling to reverence God's authority, obey his commands, and hate sin. We reverence God's authority, we obey his commands, and we hate sin. And so we recognize that God's ways are his ways, and it all has to start with a right view of the holiness of God. You don't get to a fear of the Lord by looking at yourself or seeking a fear of the Lord. You get to a fear of the Lord by looking at God and saying with Isaiah... In Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You see the holiness of God and then you see yourself for who you are and you fear him. And so defining the holiness of God is an important place to start. It means that he is absolutely and uniquely excellent above all creation. There's nothing like him. You know how often the Bible says that, who will you compare God to? That's his majesty, and he's morally pure. There's no sin in him. And indeed, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Have you ever, you're probably familiar with that verse. But do you know what I realized quite a while ago? That I pray for wisdom all the time. But the Bible tells me wisdom comes when you fear the Lord. So maybe I should be praying for fear of the Lord even more than wisdom. If it precedes wisdom, maybe we've got it reversed. And wisdom we find flows when you see God for who he is, when you fear him in a healthy and holy way. Do you realize that Jesus tells us to fear God? He commands it. I tell you, my friends, do not fear, Luke 12, those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus says, fear the Lord. And if you fear the Lord, you need fear no one or nothing else. Why do we disobey God? What's the basic reason we disobey God? The Bible, I will, I will say, will get it all back to the lack of a fear of him. Listen to Jeremiah 2, 19 as an example. Your wickedness will punish you. Your apostasies will convict you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. And why do we forsake him? Why are we wicked? Why do we apostatize? Because the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord of hosts. I prayed with my son before we drove up here that God would get us here safely. We pray for safety and travel all the time. But have you ever thought about how our prayers for safety should be, in, should be informed by Proverbs 34.7? Listen to this. God protects those, we're told, who fear him. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We know that verse. But do we know what follows? How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him, there is no want. Protection, provision comes when we fear the Lord. Why do we live holy lives as set-apart saints, holy ones? Listen to 2 Corinthians 7. 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and of spirit, making holiness perfect in the fear of God is that amazing I mean I could look at hundreds of passages we're just looking at a few why do we submit to one another in the body of Christ why do we humbly serve why do we put the others needs before our own why do we live those Philippians too? look out for the interests of others more than yourselves well here's why Ephesians five twenty one says we submit to one another be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. In other words, we fear Jesus so much, we have a humble reverence for his people and a submissiveness in their midst. But it's not only a source of fleeing sin and protection, it's a source of delight. Listen to Proverbs 14. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Listen to Psalm 112. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. And you know, Jesus, in his human life, feared the Lord. Listen to Isaiah 11, speaking of the coming Messiah. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, this Messiah to come. And it did the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. We find delight in the fear of the Lord. Jesus rejoices in the fear of the father that he's serving. I love this definition of a fear of the Lord. Listen to this. A proper fear of God is a mixture of reverence, And pleasure. Joy and awe. Which fills our hearts. When we realize who God is. And what he's done for us. It is a love for God. Which is so great. That we'd be ashamed to do anything. Which would displease him. Or grieve him. And makes us happiest. When we're doing what pleases him. I mean when you look at that definition of the fear of the lord couldn't you argue that that's what we're after more than anything in worship that description isn't that what we come to worship for to see god for who he is in all his greatness and majesty and holiness so that our response is that of isaiah woe is me And we find in our forgiveness, God provides that atoning work. And we are called then to ministry out of that, just like Isaiah and Isaiah 6. Just like these magicians who are willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. That's what we come for when we worship. That's what we want to lead people to, isn't it? Listen to that. We want them to find pleasure and joy and reverence. We want them to live lives pleasing to him. And we've got to get after this ourselves if we're ever going to do it the way God calls us to. Worship leaders need to be people who are, who are examples of fearing the Lord. That's what we're called to, to fear God to become the people that are in fear of him. And this is a confusing idea. And sometimes we think we run from God because we're too afraid of him. I would argue anybody who runs from God isn't afraid of him enough. Right? Run from God? Right? That's Jonah. Jonah, I know you fear God's actually forgiveness of a wicked people. He didn't like that idea. But if anybody's running from God because they fear him, what we need to say to him is don't fear, not don't fear God, but you don't fear him enough if you even think it's possible to run from him. Right? We, I've done a lot of hiking and, camp and backpacking and mountain climbing, and my wife have, and I have done a ton of it. And so I've read up on what you do when you encounter wildlife on the trail. Have you ever read any of those descriptions? So I'll never forget, one day I was reading what you do if you encounter a mountain lion. You, yes, you, you 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 scream, you make yourself big, you try to intimidate it, and then I remember reading, if it charges, fight it. That's what you do. You're supposed to try to fight a mountain lion. You know, you probably won't win, but but it's possible, right? But then, as I'm reading this manual, on the next page, it was what you do if you encounter a grizzly bear. And it was the opposite of what you do if you see a mountain lion. It said, if you encounter a grizzly bear on the trail, move off the trail, do not establish eye contact, make yourself as small as you can, and offer the trail to the grizzly bear wanting nothing to do with his territory, right? And then it said, I'll never forget this, because I've seen grizzly in the wild. And and I, I read it, and it said, if this does not work and the grizzly bear charges you, do you know what the next sentence was? It said, drop to the ground in the fetal position to minimize the trauma. <laughs> That's what it said. Yeah, you don't run. You don't fight a grizzly bear. You don't stand a chance. You, you might win with the mountain lion. But you ain't gonna win with the grizzly bear. And that's a good illustration of God and a bad one because it's a good one in that if you understand who God is, running from Him, if you know who God is, especially if you know Him not just as a consuming fire, not just as a God who's holy, 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 but also a God who's a Savior and a Shepherd and a Father who in His justice should only say to us, depart from me. But in his mercy says, come unto me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. If you really fear God, it would never occur to you to do anything but run to him. He's your only hope. He's your only solution. And so we need to have a healthy, holy fear of God. It's like my friend Mark that I mentioned this morning, whose wife got a terrible diagnosis recently. Mark is a man who fears God. And it's getting him through this crisis in their life. It's getting him through this. He, he just texted me a couple of hours ago and he says, I know that our Father holds my precious Carol fast and me too. He knows this. He's confident in this right now. And it's devastating to him but he's going to get through this because he, he fears God. And, and Mark is one of these guys who fears God and he's such a great example to me. I hope you have people in your life who fear the Lord. I think part of the reason Mark does is because he had a good father. You know, a good father is a father that you go to immediately when you're in trouble. But you also don't mess with him, right? You don't mess with him. And and there's a sense where we've got to restore something that's really been lost in the church. God's like, like this boyfriend in the sky. Instead of almighty God, and, and he's got to be almighty God to us. He's got to be the God of the universe. He's got to be the God who grips our hearts and strikes fear in our hearts. And please don't focus on what you give up. They, they, they gave up a ton to follow Jesus in this scene. And it will always be hard to follow Jesus. He tells you that. He says, take up your cross daily and follow me. He's not, he doesn't have small print. He doesn't have some salesman approach where you really don't know what you're getting into. He couldn't be more clear that following him will cost you your life and it'll be hard. But you know what? Choose your heart. Not following him is hard too. And it ends up in hell. It ends up in devastation. It ends up in destruction. Just choose your heart. Choose which way you want to go. It's going to be tough to follow Jesus but so will not following him. And so we have a choice. What kind of lives are we going to live? The, we don't need any more Christian celebrities. We don't need one more Christian celebrity. I am so tired of Christian celebrity culture. I got to tell you, when I moved here, so I moved here from New England and P, uh, Paris. Is, he's he's got family in Connecticut. The average church in Connecticut seventy people. It's about this size. And and it ain't cool. Uh, it ain't slick. And it ain't impressive, the average New Englander has to drive 40 minutes to a good gospel-preaching church. They're just not around. And and I moved out here to Southern California, well, where I live, not Central Valley here, but I moved out to Southern California, and I got here, and I started asking people, what church you go to? And they say, oh, we go to Tommy So-and-So's church. And I said, who? And they would look at me like, you don't know Tommy So-and-So. And I'd say, no. And they'd wonder if I was a Christian, Right? And, and sometimes the, Tommy so-and-so was their pastor that everybody should know or their worship leader who's, oh, everybody knows. And I didn't know any of them. And I did. I, I was constantly realizing, oh, there are these big names. And I'm not faulting Tommy so-and-so, right? I'm not faulting these, these guys necessarily. Although I don't think Paul would ever have a ministry called Paul of Tarsus Ministries. I'm sorry. I just don't. Now it's nothing against people who do it necessarily, because it's just the way things go these days. But, but, but it, we don't need any more celebrities. But you know what we do need? We need heroes. We need heroes. We need people whose lives are willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. I just was, oh, I was talking to Annie, Annie Paris's wife at dinner. She went to Jim Elliot High School. Academy or something, yeah. Named after a martyred missionary. He died by a spear at 27. Jim Elliott's not a celebrity. Jim Elliott didn't have skinny jeans and a cool haircut. He had a spear in his back. We don't, we don't need any more celebrities. And, and here, here's something I love. The younger generation that I get to be with all the time, I think you're tired of celebrities too. I don't think you care if people are cool like, like young people did when I got in ministry 20, 30 years ago. That was a big priority. I think you want to know are people legit? Are they real? Are they authentic? Are they going to be who they say they're going to be? Are they going to have characters? I mean, they're perfect. But are, are, they, are they real? Do they have integrity? Can you count on them? I mentioned this morning, I feel like the last couple of years of people not being who I I thought they were and who they said they were. Let's be different. Let's be a people who fear God and don't fear man. The fear of man is one of the biggest sins we have to come to to terms with. We've got to get rid of this. Fear of man, this desire to be liked, this desire to be popular, and fear God and want people to do nothing more than to fear him and find their greatest pleasure in him and their greatest delight in him. That's what we're called to. And don't focus on what you give up. You find freedom. You find eternal life. You find abundant life when you give up whatever it means to follow Jesus with integrity. And don't wait till you feel like it entirely either because people think to be authentic means you should be just messy and only do what flows from your gut. No, we're, we're called to do what's right even when we don't feel like it. And that's not hypocrisy. That's actually integrity. Doing what's right even when you don't feel like it isn't being fake. It's having integrity. So don't wait to feel like you, like you should until you do what you should. And whether it's pornography or just flat out wasting time all the time, we've got to redeem the time for the days are evil. We can't flirt around with all the things the world says is going to give us life. I've got to tell you, I've been sinning for 57 years and sin has never kept its promise once to me. Not once. And so, so I'm calling you young people to be different. Just be different, love being different. Not not just being different for the sake of being different, but being different because the world, which is in opposition opposition to Jesus, will see you as a weirdo or a problem if you're faithful in following Jesus. If you simply decide to be sexually pure, if you simply decide to, to use language in a way that's edifying and doesn't tear people down, if you simply decide to be grateful instead of a whiner, You'll be radically different than most people. It's not hard to be different. We're called to fear God and live lives of holiness. We're called to be holy. Why? Because he is. And we're called to be like him and show people who he is, not just with our words and our singing, but with our very lives. We've got a crisis of character in the church. Our culture loves and rewards charisma, not character. It loves and rewards talent, not godliness. And so let's not play into that nonsense. Let's be different. And it means, if it means we don't get as many gigs as we might have wanted to otherwise, so be it. Be godly and follow Jesus and let him orchestrate the effectiveness and fruitfulness of your ministry. Trust him with that. Be godly people who follow him. When I preach even to people who love to lead worship and want to lead worship, I don't ever assume that everybody here really understands the gospel. I've led people to Christ in my church, getting them ready to be baptized. I've I've led people to Christ in my church going through the membership process after they've been in my church for 10 years, and I realized they didn't understand the gospel. I realized they, they, they were just religious people or just moral people or knew lots of right answers, but they don't have a relationship with Jesus. Now, I I'd never assume everybody that I'm talking to, even people who want to be worship leaders, really understand the gospel. We've been laying it out this, this weekend, and I just want to give you an opportunity. If, if you've come to realize this weekend, I don't think I've really understood the gospel. I think that I'm like those people who needed to go to another level of understanding to be real. If if that's you, if you're saying, I think I came here loving the worship experience, but not really knowing and loving the God that we worship. If that's you, I want to pray for you. We want to pray for you. So would you just raise your hand so we can do that? All right. Thank you. Tell me your name. Joseph. Joseph. Beautiful. Anybody else? Vincent. Vincent. Oh, Vincent. Sorry, Vincent. That's a great name. name, It (laughs) is? (laughs) That was prophetic. All right. Well, yeah. That's beautiful. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for, for, for Vincent Joseph. Thank you for his desire to want to make sure and not leave any doubt that he has a relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would be pressing home your beauty and glory and majesty and holiness and goodness and mercy and wrath and jealousy and justice and beauty and perfection and goodness. Lord, I pray that he'd be overwhelmed with who you are and that he would know who you are in Christ who gave himself for sinners, so that we could be sons and daughters. Father, we pray for Joseph. We pray for all of us that we would find life in Christ, not just a major part of our life, but life itself. And Lord, I pray you would give us an increasing understanding of who you are. And as we seek to lead others in worship, we would want nothing more than for them to have a greater fear of you, a greater understanding of who you are, a greater delight in who you are, a greater dependence in who you are, so that we can live lives that are radically different and that are salt and light in a desperately needy and dark world. Lord, we're grateful that you have brought us to yourself. And I pray that, that, that Vincent would know that as he raises his hand and, and wants to walk with Jesus in trusting, saving faith, help him to know that it's going to be hard. And there will be attack even tonight, and Lord, I pray that we, especially those who know him, will gather around him and pray for him and support him, and that you would bring him to an incredibly supportive church family to nurture him and build him up. Lord, for all of us, I pray that we would lean in to the word and to fellowship and to worship and to prayer, Lord, that you would be working in our lives, deepening our fear of you. In our holy lives, in our fruitfulness in ministry, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.